Well, hello there, ladies, gentlemen, and as always, everyone in between. Uh, my name is Clifton Duncan. This is my podcast. Thank you so much for joining me for yet another fascinating conversation that lives at the nexus of art, entertainment, culture, and society. You won't want to miss this one, folks. Live theater is dying, and almost no one is being honest about why. The LA Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, the New York Times have all weighed in on the issue, but there's all kinds of hemming and hawing from other journalists and industry leaders about why, uh, you know, they say the pandemic, maybe economic woes, but the thing is, other forms of live entertainment are doing just fine. Uh, music, pro sports, pro wrestling, they're all doing well in our post-pandemic new normal. And uh, even influencers like Logan and Jake Paul and uh, Mr. Ballin, a personal favorite of mine, are packing venues with their live events. So the question is, if the economy or a certain disease are the issue, why are audiences still braving both and supporting entertainment they love while nearly one-third of audiences have not returned to the theater post-pandemic? Why are there theater business management experts predicting that the industry may shrink by half in the next year? Can the industry be saved? What can be done to save it? Or is it too late and America simply does not give a shit? Well, my guest today is one of the few journalists who has the balls to say what needs to be said. Uh, he's uniquely qualified to, uh, to talk about this. I can't wait to do so. Uh, but first, however you're consuming this podcast, be it Spotify, Apple, whatever, wherever you prefer to scratch your CDP itch, make sure to leave a like, a comment, or a review if you're nasty. If you're watching on YouTube, I would deeply appreciate you if you subscribed. And as always, you can help this podcast and community grow by sharing this show as much as possible. If you love it, share it with your friends, especially if they're in the theater. And if you hate it, why then share it with your enemies. You can also find me on Rumble, where I put exclusive content that you can't find anywhere else, conversations with amazing people um, like Viva Fry, Billboard Chris, and many, many more. So sign up there and support me on Locals while you're at it. The links will be in the show notes. Lastly, I am a one-man operation. I prefer not to be a starving artist. So a big thank you to all my supporters on Locals, to my paid subscribers on my newsletter, The State of the Arts, and to the generous souls who donate via PayPal, Venmo, or Cash App. Thank you so much. It really helps keep me pushing to bring you the material that you want to see. Now, my fantastic guest today is an erstwhile man of the theater, um, and uh, he's now a writer, a journalist. His work can be seen in a variety of fantastic publications, such as Tablet Magazine, Real Clear Investigations, Brownstone Institute, um, LA Magazine, and, excuse me, pertinent to today's conversation, American Theater Magazine. My friends, his name is Clayton Fox. He is a fox in many, many ways. Uh, sir, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thanks for the self-esteem boost. Appreciate that. <laughs> well, you know, we all need a little bit. For sure. I also appreciate your Janet Jackson reference there in the uh, in the intro. Thank you. I'm glad I'm glad you caught that. Uh, yeah, I'm a big I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. I think, you know, I get into a lot of trouble saying she's the superior Jackson. But, uh, you know, that's another podcast, maybe. Well, you know, I, I don't know if I'd say she was superior. However, I do appreciate that she could have easily fallen into a Michael's shadow, but she she carved out a career for herself, which was uh, brilliant in its own way. So she's she's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, first um, thing I want to talk about is a little bit about uh, is a little bit about your background because I want to kind of set the the foundation for the rest of the conversation. Uh, you, you, like I said, you're 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 uniquely qualified to cover these issues. So uh, you, just give us a little bit about yourself, uh, Mr. Fox. Okay. Uh, well, let's see. I 
you know, got into the theater in high school. I went to an amazing sort of public high school, but basically like an arts magnet school uh, in just outside Chicago. And, you know, I never expected to fall into the theater in the way that I did. You know, I was always a science nerd when I was a kid, um, but I really fell in love with it took over my whole life. Uh, basically, that continued through college, went to NYU, trained at the Atlantic Acting School, sort of David Mamet and Macy's, uh, you know, baby, that acting program, and had a blast. I mean, met a lot of great people, learned a lot. Um, and I should mention, you know, from a political standpoint, or from a sort of, you know, a philosophical standpoint, you can ask my classmates from, from Atlantic. I, there was nobody who was more sort of on the left rah rah you know progressive ideas let's change the world theater's the way to do it than me i mean maybe there was a couple of people but basically it was me uh and and if you ask my classmates i think they would tell you that um so that's how I, that's what i was doing in college and then i worked professionally a bit like you know you've done it the regional circuit you do a show here you do a show there uh you know readings in new york um never actually got to do like a professional show in new york some little film stuff commercial stuff nothing major um and then you know, at a certain point, I, I did have a bit of crisis of faith in the theater. I mean, way before the current stuff we're going to talk about. Hmm. Um, I think because, and I actually do think this is relevant. I think I hit this wall uh, in about, well, it was like 2013, of feeling like, wait a minute, maybe this doesn't change the world. Maybe that's not the point of this, right? Because when you have this super idealistic view of the theater, and my favorite play, let's just be clear, is Angels in America. It was my favorite play. It's still my favorite play. The fact that my points of view on other things have shifted in certain ways doesn't negate the fact that, you know, that play and the message of that play means a lot to me. But I took it almost too seriously, which was to say, what is the point of that play? What is the message of that play? Well, really progress at all costs, more life. We have to move forward. If we stop moving, we die. Kind of like sharks, right? That's, that's I think, what Kushner is trying to get across. Anyway, long story short... I found myself at a point doing these professional jobs and feeling like even if I liked the people I worked with, even if I enjoyed the material, it didn't have the, the grandeur of the activism that I wanted the theater to have. I wanted the theater to have activism in it when I was, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and then I realized like, oh, actually that might not be the purpose of theater. The purpose of theater might actually be something much simpler and more human, which is just to bring us closer to ourselves. Hmm. And that wasn't good enough for me at that time because I was in an activist mindset. And so I had a bit of a freak out and I kind of left and I stopped doing it. Uh, and then I did a bunch of other things, ended up in the wine business, uh, lived in Los Angeles doing that for a while, et cetera, et cetera. And then accidentally in a way tripped into working for Tablet Magazine. Um, I'm very lucky to have accidentally tripped in. I think they're incredible people. I'm honored to work with them and, you know, I don't know how it all happened. It feels a bit like a, you know, just amazing like life uh, occurrence. But anyway, the last few years I've I've worked mostly for Tablet, but for some of those other publications as well, and have been writing a lot about the pandemic. Now, the article we're going to talk about, at least the first one, is about the theater, and I'm very glad to have written that. And I've written a couple other arts and culture things. I I sort of tried to rehabilitate David Mamet last year, um, you know, in spite of the fact that many people watching this will be like. <laughs> you know, because they really don't like him. Um, but my point, you know, in, in sort of talking with him and, and writing about his work is like, you know, dismiss a great artist at your own peril because the guy has a lot to offer. Um, and and so anyway, but I've been mostly writing about the pandemic 
about the vaccines, about the mandates, about early treatment that we've ignored. Um, and I've really gone down this rabbit hole. And, you know, why have I gone down this rabbit hole? I don't know. I think if I could summarize it, it was clear to me almost from the beginning of the pandemic that something was really wrong. And it became clearer and clearer to me, especially as the vaccines started to roll out, that essentially the entire thing, from whatever angle you want to look at it, is a great crime against humanity. And I'm not fond of crimes against humanity. So I became a bit obsessed with it. Um, and that's been my that's been my work. I hope that's a good summary. Well, it's a it's a it's an amazing summary. We'll certainly get to uh, all that later. You did mention that you're a science nerd, which again goes back into this idea that uh, not only being a, an artist um, and a former activist, uh, you know, you just you're you're quite uniquely uh, placed to comment on all these things. I am curious, however, um, you, you mentioned what was there a specific event that caused a shift in your philosophy, or or was it just a gradual development over time? Uh, you mean my political philosophy or? Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> was there, I'll tell you what, what really hit me hard and I didn't even expect that this would happen. And a lot of people are going to go, what are you talking about? And I also just want to say to people who are watching this, because maybe a lot of my old friends will be watching this. Maybe new people will be watching this. I think it's important for us to say this. I've been thinking about this a lot, you know, because, you know, for example, you mentioned Tucker Carlson to someone, they freak out. I mean, if they come from our world, you know, from the theater world, from the left left wing world, even just mentioning the guy's name, they freak out. And I, I just think we have to, it's like, for example, I would say to my old friends, you know me, you know me, just because some of my ideas have changed, you know me. And it's like, if I'm asking the right question, then who cares what I think about certain things? Or if Tucker Carlson's asking the right question, the question that matters now to all of us, who cares what his associations are? doesn't matter. In the search for truth, the only thing that matters is, are you asking the right question? You know? So I just think it's important to say that because I'm sure you've had conversations with people on this podcast. You don't agree with them about everything. You might even find some other beliefs abhorrent or repellent, but if they are asking the right question, they're still worth talking to, right? So I just think it's important to like put that idea out there, you know? And then I will answer your question, which is to say, so January 6th happened, and I was as upset about it as anybody, I don't know, on the left. I mean, I don't even know where to place myself at that point, but I was very like, oh my God, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. And it's like the news was telling us this is the worst thing that's ever happened. You know, like there's some people walking around the Capitol. It's an insurrection. And, you know, and I really bought into that. I mean, I was like screaming at my parents about it over the phone because they were like, mm, I don't know if it's as bad as you think it is. Like, Maybe it's, you know, maybe let's just like take a step back and just like really look at the bigger picture. Not that they were supporting it. Let me be clear. I don't want them to get thrown in jail. Um, but, you know, what happened for me was really interesting. So then two weeks later, Biden is inaugurated. And then another week goes by and another week goes by. And the National Guard is still in D.C. Essentially, the army, the military is in D.C. And they're saying, oh, well, they have to be here because what if these what if these people come back? And I thought, huh, I don't think those people are coming back. So why is the army in the Capitol at the behest of the president? Like in Rome, ancient Rome, right? The, the sort of line was the Rubicon River. And if the army of the Republic were to cross the river into Rome, into the Capitol, that, was, that would have been seen as like 
that would have been seen as an abuse of power and perhaps an insurrection against the Republic of Rome. And so for me, seeing DC so heavily militarized for weeks and weeks and weeks after it was clear that the soldiers were no longer required to be there, that show of force made me think, wait a minute, this is sort of anti-democratic. I don't believe in this. Our military should not be in the capital. It's very intimidating. What is going on here? And that little thing began a journey of just questioning for me about pretty much everything. So I would say, you know, my my state of the last two, three years has been like just a big question mark, as I know it has been for you. Well, it's interesting. I do remember that imagery. I was very disturbed by it because, I mean, I love the city of Washington, D.C. I've been there. I've worked there many times. Um, one of the pleasures of working in that city or being in that city is you can walk around, you know, this, this hallowed ground, right? All this beautiful architecture, this beautiful lawns, you know, it's, it's the, the, the capital. And to see it uh, locked down like that um, was, was, really, uh, was really something. And I have to also say that, um, yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? When you begin to sort of travel anywhere outside of these uh, ideological parameters, so to speak, uh, you're immediately attacked. I remember I was talking to a friend, in, uh, a former friend in New York a long time ago, um, and we were covering some article because we were talking about the, what was that Scorsese film with uh, De Niro, who was supposed to be like, you know, de-aged, but he was still obviously like a 70 or 80 year old man, <laughs> but okay. he was supposed to be a 30 year old. It's called The Irishman, and the Irishman. I still watched it. Dude, so, dude, look, I, I took an edible before I, I watched that film. I was like, oh, man, it's, it's, a new, it's a new Scorsese film. It's got all these great actors in it. Man, every ounce of THC was drained from my body by that film. It was so interminably boring. And, uh, but, you know, that's, that's really, really beside the point. But I remember, he, you know, we were talking about this article. I think it was the New York Post that had written a, a review about it. And it was like, oh, you know, uh, can we just agree that The Irishman is not very good? And um, remember this guy's kind of being like, uh oh, it's kind of right wingy. And I was like, that's not it's sort of what you were saying, right? I mean, it, it doesn't matter what this person's um, perspective is. They're saying something that we're all that we're both agreeing with, which is like the Irishman is really overrated and not that good. Um, but it's, a, it's sort of a nice way to segue into um, your article, actually. You wrote this piece for Tablet Magazine called The Toxic Gentleness of the American Theater, because uh, it speaks to um, the sort of ideological possession, as some might call it, of, of the, the arts in general and the theater, I think, is really suffering from that uh, at the moment. So can you describe what is toxic gentleness? How did you come up with that phrase? Good question, because a lot of people specifically have honed in on that as like the, the thing that they most uh, got out of the piece is just this, this sort of concept. Um, so I guess if I had to write a dictionary definition for it, I would say it's when uh, empathy uh, goes so far that it actually becomes toxic. So it's like people who are obsessed with being kind to others and making sure everyone feels seen and making sure everyone of every tiny niche identity question crisis is always represented at all times it becomes a kind of oppressive uh, philosophy actually because it then doesn't really allow room for i don't know real interaction because everything has to be gentle everything has to be monitored and soft and you know uh inoffensive and there's a toxicness to that. I mean, listen, I grew up in the Midwest, you know, passive aggressive bullshit. It gets very uh, taxing over time, constantly having to, oh yeah, no, yeah, oh sure, no, I would never wanna, 
I find it toxic. I don't know what to tell you. I've always felt very, um, maybe because I'm, you know, Jewish, but I've always felt very uh, at home in the sort of New York milieu of like, no, 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 just tell me what you're thinking. Let's just have a conversation. And so, okay, you said something that uh, I didn't like that, but whatever, I'll tell you I didn't like it and then we can have a conversation about it. I don't know, to me, there's something more honest about that way of interacting than taking this empathy to such an extent that everyone feels stifled and can't speak. I know that's a bit of a rambling definition, but I think people know what I'm talking about. And it's very, it's much more pronounced among younger people. People our age and younger really have become obsessed with the idea that the most important value is uh, always just really just hearing everyone. And it's like, okay, yes, let's listen to each other. But if you're doing it in a, in a pathological way, you can't get anything done. If you're a fan of the Clifton Duncan podcast, you'll love my new newsletter called The State of the Arts. Sign up for free for weekly articles as well as the latest information on my upcoming projects, shows, events, and appearances. And for just $5 a month, you can hear me bring my articles to life in my velvety baritone voice. Join the growing heterodox arts movement and subscribe to The State of the Arts today at cliftonduncan.substack.com. Some people call it pathological altruism. I mean, it's sort of a a mutation even of, uh, you know, what we used to, I mean, I miss the days when we can just complain about political correctness, but now, you know, it, it's one of the reasons I think that it's so difficult to, uh, to push back against because it's just framed as, uh, political correctness is framed as, um, well, you're, you're simply, uh, you're taking care of other people, you're you're protecting their feelings, you're showing respect and deference to them and their different experiences. But, you know, there is a point where it can become weaponized, I think. And I think that's a large part of what's happened to the extent where now, you know, I, it's, it's funny, because I actually had a, a phone call with a colleague who's still in that world. And this person, I don't even want to gender them because I don't want them to, uh, you know, be connected to me in any way. That, that's how much right. that, that, that's, that's my that's my gentleness there at work. Um, but they were just telling me about how, uh, you know, that this person is, um, is a homosexual and they do not sign on with all of the gender ideology. Um, they are finding it difficult, if not impossible to find work right now because uh, they are the wrong skin color, that being white. And, but you know, what, what can you really say to, 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 you know, in, in their defense, right? It's just, well, okay, you don't care about trans people. Well, you don't care about black people. That's always going to be the pushback on these ideas. And I don't, that's why I don't, I don't know if there's any, any real way out of the predicament ideologically, the ideological predicament that the, that the arts and the theater specifically finds itself in. Yeah, that's, hey, let's talk about that. So in the article, you know, something I focus on a little bit is that declaration from the We See You White American Theater Group, which came out in 2020. Um, and I think, you know, people who know what I'm talking about will know, people who don't know, I guess we can explain it to them. Basically, a, a group of very, I mean, some very famous and some, you know, just starting out artists uh, of, you know, non-white backgrounds wrote this manifesto in 2020, I think after George Floyd was killed. Uh, anyway, they released this manifesto that basically said, you know, the theater, American theater is basically irreparably racist everything about it has been racist forever and we're not going to stand for it anymore and here's all the things we need you to do to make up for you know you toxic white people like 
here's what you need to do to like fix it, right? And it was a list of, it was like 30 pages or 40 pages. I don't know, it was long. And it was really a manifesto, like the Communist Manifesto, if you ever read the Communist Manifesto. And some of the stuff in there, it's like you say, there's no way out because the, the framing is basically like, I mean, in the manifesto, in the demands, they compared, and I read about this in the article, they compare having, you know, I suppose it's specific to actors of color. By the way, do you even like that term? Is that term of color? I mean, like, where do you fall on that? Because sometimes I'm like, that's what people want you to say. Some, I don't know. No, it's like saying colored people. And also, you know, it, it terms like it, terms like strong woman, white rapper, black actor, these kinds of things. It, it really they I really am irritated by them because they the 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 presumption inherent in the phrase says that I by default cannot be one of these things and you know an, an actor of color it's, it's just another way of of dividing people you know what i mean i mean to me james earl jones is a really brilliant actor he's Period. not an actor of color exactly you know, yeah yeah and, and well, so on and so forth so i don't know the so i'm not i don't know how to say it but basically in the manifesto they say having actors do you know a meet and greet with like fun with uh donors is akin to slavery I mean, they say that in the thing. So what are you going to do if you're a well-intentioned white person or a well-intentioned non-white person working at a theater and you have these young people and not just young people, Viola Davis, Sandra Oh, uh, who else signed on to that thing? A lot of people signed on to that thing. And they're coming to you and they're saying, um, if you ask your actors to schmooze for an hour after rehearsal with rich people who actually pay everyone's salary, <laughs> that is slavery. It's you can't escape from that. It's the same reason why we can't escape from anything these days because the left and the right can be guilty of this too in their own way sometimes, but the left frames everything as a zero-sum game between what is right and genocide. So if your options are do the right thing or you're, or you're basically a Nazi who's going to commit genocide, no one would risk being affiliated with that. No one would... Do you know what I'm saying? Like there, you, There's no way out because the stakes have been raised to this almost farcical level when in fact, let's, let's be honest. And you can talk about this because you have a lot of experience with it. The theater community as, as fucked up as it's been, and there have been definitely fucked up people, abusive people, racist people, no doubt about it. But the community at large has been one of the most progressive, open-minded, tolerant communities in this country for decades, if not century, you know, a hundred years. So the fact that this industry particularly is being accused of, you know, having their, uh, you know, employees performing essentially slavery at a donor meet and greet, it, it seems a bit hyperbolic, no? Well, and the funny thing is, because I'm looking at it right now, I was actually rereading the document, and, and it is accurately described as a manifesto last night. I have it here in front of me. And to those who think, um, I'll link it in the show notes, because if you think Clayton is exaggerating about what's in this document, I mean, when I read it, I laughed a lot just because it's so over the top and so melodramatic. But I mean, he, here's an excerpt, for instance. Uh, we demand, it's full of demands, we demand hiring, salary, and budgetary transparency and parity and an explicit history of theater land acquisition. We demand compensation for all our work and refuse to engage in unpaid labor through internships, donor cultivation, galas, 
talkbacks, marketing or otherwise, as slavery has been abolished. So Clayton is not exaggerating. They literally compare these things, which are part of promoting a show. It's part of fostering relationships between audience, um, donors, board members, all these things to you know, to maintain, you know, funding and all these other things for, for the arts. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not an exaggeration. He's, they're literally comparing uh, this to slavery. And, you know, to, but to your question, you know, ever since I was 17 years old, so this is, you know, way back in the early aughts, um, people have encouraged me, my, my white colleagues and others have said, you know, hey, if you really work at this, you can be successful. And their prophecies turned out to be correct. People from the very beginning were saying, hey, man, you've got a lot of uh, you've got a lot going for you and uh, you can have a really long career. And um, and they were right about that. In fact, they believed in me more than I believed in myself for a very long time. And I think it's ironic now that these very same progressives have actually done the most damage and the most harm to my career and my reputation um, as a result of, of their actions. So it's so it's an insult to me, you know, and, and on top of all of that, you know, minorities like myself who don't buy into any of this. And I used to. I really used to. Um, but those who those are rejected are either overlooked or we are derided uh, as, you know, we're trying to be white. Uh, we're not down for the cause and all these other things. And, uh, you know, me, look, I never got into acting to be some kind of activist. I got into acting because I was really good at it and I didn't want to do anything else. I didn't know what else I was going to do, <laughs> you know, and I just happened to keep uh, keep getting hired over and over again and getting into these great schools and, and moving on. I mean, if you had asked me, um, you know, 10 years ago, uh, if I'd be, uh, you know, in New York and have these, you know, a powerful manager and have a, my face up on a, a billboard in Times Square, I would have been like, well, you're nuts. What are you talking about? So I've been very privileged and lucky um, in the supposedly racist industry to have no barriers to my hiring whatsoever. It's very strange. It's very, it is very strange. What can we say? What can we say except that it's strange? And by the way, on the, the point of being sort of ostracized as, you know, a black man who doesn't go along with, you know, what you're supposed to believe as a black man in the theater. I mean, have you been, I mean, I know you've been following the whole Thomas Sowell thing on Twitter. I mean, it's insane. I mean, it's just the stupidity. I'm just going to say it. The stupidity of, of white progressives or any progressives who think they're dunking on people, who, who think they're dunking on people because people are quoting Thomas Sowell is, is, is ludicrous to me. Because if people don't know who that is, he is one of the great minds of the 20th century, period, the end, no questions asked. He happens to be a black man with conservative ideas. But if you think you can dunk on Thomas Sowell, you think you can dunk on people who are quoting from his ideas, you're a moron. I'm sorry, you're a moron, which is not to say that there aren't counter arguments to Thomas Sowell's ideas and that we can't have a conversation. But I mean, how patronizing, how disgusting to dunk on somebody like that or to dunk on somebody like you, you know, instead of engaging with you. I think it's just it's vile. People are vile. There's a lot of vile people out there. Well, yeah. And it's also, you know, it, it, it's it's ridiculous. There was uh, just the other day, uh, Tim Wise, who was one of the OG anti-racists, uh, you know, who whose uh, work I used to admire back in the day. He tweeted something out about, uh, oh, I see that Thomas Sowell is trending, which means that some conservatives have finally found some white conservatives have finally found a black man that they can listen to um, while pretending that he speaks for the majority or something like or, or or pretending to ignore the vast majority of other black people. And I just I'm saying to myself. And so I responded, you know, I, I quote tweeted him uh, with a really snarky reply. I was like, you know, I see that Thomas Sowell is trending. 
um, you know, it, it gives a bunch of lip, limp dick white leftists the opportunity to, uh, you know, it was it was very it was very uh, it was very snarky. But, uh, you know, they, these people pretend to speak on behalf of everyone um, like who looks like me and, and they don't. I remember also Nicole Hannah Jones um, got dragged on, on Twitter because she was saying something like, you know, if anyone recommends me to read Thomas Sowell, they're getting an automatic block. These people are willfully ignorant. And it's not just that Thomas Sowell, you know, writes on race. I mean, he's written on a, a, his work has been prolific in a variety of subjects. And, um, that's one of the reasons he's so revered by these supposedly racist anti-intellectual right wingers is because his breadth of work, his scope, um, has just been so massive. And so to well, see and he's people- been right. And he's been right more often than his, he's an economist, right? His predictions about economics have been right more often than Paul Krugman's, okay? But Paul Krugman has a Nobel Prize. Why? I don't know, I'll never know. But you know, people who think they're really smart because they read the New York Times and they listen to economists like Paul Krugman uh, when he's always wrong and Thomas Sowell is often, all, almost always right. It's like just and it, the same thing we can talk about COVID, when we get to talk about COVID. It's like people dunk on Brett Weinstein. It's like, first of all, Brett's a liberal, but also he's been right. Why? Why are we? Um, what's the word? Uh, uh, going after people who are consistently correct. You would think that that would if someone's consistently correct, you'd start to listen. You'd start to at least give their ideas like uh you know, a real look as opposed to just writing them off on an ideological or, or or group think or dare I say mass formation psychosis basis, which is which is applicable in the theater and in the COVID situation. But sorry, I, I cut you off. No, no, no. Well, here's, you know, it, it's a it's a topic that um, I've been thinking about a lot lately. It's, you know, this this huge uh, you know, maybe entertainment media complex, journalistic media complex. And, you know, we we, we all know that right-wingers uh, lie, left-wingers lie, the politicians lie all over the place. But um, from my observation, it is only people from the, who come from the left side of the spectrum who are able to get away with their lies. Because in, whether you're talking about media and entertainment or academia, um, or even Silicon Valley, you have people who share and whose views and beliefs align with the people who are doing this lying. And so these lies are then laundered. These they're, they're then laundered through the New York Times, through CNN, through, um, you know, through uh, Google and Twitter algorithms. And, uh, and so people go their entire lives. I mean, I remember when I was, you know, to use David Mamet's term, a, a brain dead liberal, um, you know, it, 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 you, you don't even know what you don't know. You know what I mean? It's like, you don't, you have no idea. There's a whole, I mean, I remember I had someone, you know, I, I left Facebook, uh, because I got tired of arguing with people because there was one guy who just said, you know, there is no liberal bias in media. And they say that as if it were a fact, you know, while still acknowledging that like Fox news or the Christian broadcast network are obviously ideological outliers. So it, it just, there's no there's no sense that there is any other way to look at the world. And I think Thomas Sowell has actually said this as well when he was back when he was a diehard Marxist. He said, you know, it just, it really described the, the way that the world was. It resonated with me and it, it explained a lot of things, but, you know, it, but it wasn't until I became working in government that my mind changed, but, you know, but he didn't even know there was another way to look at the world. And these people also don't know. And now I think they're suffering the consequences for that. Do you drink coffee or tea? 
Of course you do, and that's why I want to tell you about my sponsor, Twin Engine Coffee. Twin Engine Coffee grows and roasts specialty-grade coffees right on the farms in Central America. If you don't drink coffee, try Catura Tea, my personal favorite, made from the dried fruit of the coffee plant. Pro tip, add some ginger, lemon, honey, and a dash of cayenne powder, and you'll have the perfect, sexy, soothing concoction. Support small business and this podcast and order from TwinEngineCoffee.com slash Clifton Duncan. Again, that is TwinEngineCoffee.com slash Clifton Duncan. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that great plays are inherently conservative? And even Angels in America, because the reason I ask that, I've been thinking about it a lot, is like as much as it, in a way it requires a like super liberal or, well, like, no, actually liberal in the original sense, open-minded, freedom-loving, temperament to create theater right which is why it ends up that so much of the theater is filled with you know democrats because that is the sort of association is if you're a liberal you're a democrat even though they're not liberal anymore but like to create theater you have to have that sort of liberal mindset but the actual work itself the great plays the great plays i i keep thinking about them i'm like aren't they inherently conservative because don't they deal with actual harsh realities of being a human who has to survive on the planet and isn't that sort of the basis of conservative thinking is wait a minute everything can actually be boiled down to some very basic precepts about being alive well you know i think it it boils down to a few things one i mean it's it's how are we defining conservative are we talking about politically conservative socially conservative philosophically conservative i think um and this you know i think about friedrich hayek writes about this in the road to serfdom you know how the how the left wing has seized language and they've corrupted language to the extent that people who are considered conservatives in this country, in America, um, often have more liberal beliefs and views than those who call themselves liberals. Um, that said, you know, I, I, I think it's more important to focus on the tragic vision, because I thought about this as well, the tragic vision of life. And you would think, right, that artists would have this understanding that humans are inherently flawed and that they're that we're prone to vice to to even violence to waste all these things and that's that's what you want to write about in both drama and in comedy you know it's that that's where you find all the gold and um yet on the on the left and this is why i sort of i especially after reading uh soul's uh, vision of the anointed or, no, or the uh, conflict of visions i should i should say I, I i use less i don't think the terms liberal and conservative are as useful as idealist and realist, um, respectively, you know right. what I mean? Because, and, and that's, and I think those are better, that's better language because it doesn't have the connotations of that both and the baggage that both terms have. Like you need, you know, you have the idealist who says, you know, we should have healthcare for all. And the realist says that sounds great, but how do we pay for it? You know, the, the, the idealist is a romantic who says, you know, people should be, you know, if they're fleeing, from persecution or whatever, they should be able to come here to the land of the free. And the realist says, yes, I agree. However, we need to have some kind of boundaries and some kind of system in place, um, some kind of structure in place so that we can, you know, because space is finite and resources are finite. We have to consider the impact on the economy and the people who are already here, yada, yada, yada. You know, what are the rules for this migration? And so that, that push and pull is great. So I think there's always going to be, um, to, I guess to your question, that idealism, that, that openness, that romanticism, you know, is sort of the soul of the artist. But I think maybe in terms of um, understanding the tragedy of the human condition, maybe it is that, uh, you know, these 
the great artists, the great writers lean more towards a tragic vision, which, which in our modern era seems to lean more to the conservative bent of things. So I think it's a more complicated question than, um, you know, than whether or not great art is uh, conservative or not. You know what I mean? No, that's a great way. That's a great prism. The idealist realist dichotomy is a great prism to actually look at things through and it applies to theater and it applies to COVID. Let me explain just quickly. <laughs> so in order, well, no, it's to, funny because I was gonna, I was gonna uh, uh, segue into that, but uh, but I'll let you finish and I'll and I'll do that. Okay, so like it, it, so how does it apply to theater? Well, to make theater, you have to be a lunatic. You have to be an idealist. You have to be a lunatic, like Win Handman in that great documentary about Win Handman, who started the American Place Theater in New York, which you know is like a legendary, like iconic, which by the way incubated a lot of non-white playwrights. Um, even though Win, I think, was Jewish, I don't know. But he says, you know, it takes a lunatic, I think is the name of the of the documentary, to make theater, you have to be an idealist. But then when you look at the characters and the actual plays that stand the test of time, it's a tragic vision. It's realism. It's it's really realism. It's like, we all know Willie Loman, okay? Like, we all we all know, uh, uh, oh my gosh, I can't remember the character's name, the mother in Long Day's Journey and Tonight. Everybody knows somebody in their family, somebody in someone else's family who are these incredible human beings who you fall in love with and are so flawed and so fucked up. And I don't know, that's why I go to the theater for the catharsis of identifying with those people, right? From whatever background, it doesn't matter. It's about presenting flawed, tragic truths. And what has happened is that the idealism that it requires to actually make theater has actually infiltrated the actual content of the theater as well to where plays are sort of a, I don't know, um, what, like an attempt at showing the audience how the world should be rather than showing them how it is and letting them draw their own conclusions and try to improve their world if they see fit to do so. Now it's like let you're getting lectured on, here's how you need to improve your world. Like Fairview, I think we talked about Fairview, right? Like that play that was on Broadway recently. And it's like, and like the end of the play essentially is like, you know, telling the white audience like, you better fix this. Like you're, you are in the wrong and you better fix it. And I don't know. I, that's not why I go to the theater. I don't, I don't think it's why you go to the theater, but the same, so the same dichotomy applies to COVID. Let's talk about specifically with the COVID vaccine, right? And it's the same people in both situations who take the same point of view, which is that the idealists really, and I have friends like this and like, God bless them. But when the vaccines got rolled out, they really thought, and to be honest, I actually kind of thought at the very beginning when they were giving us 95%, 90% effective, 100% effective. I was like, hell yeah, let's do this. Because I was sick of, I wanted it all to be over. I'm sure you did too. And I thought, yeah, maybe, you know, 100% effective sounds good. But as soon as you applied any scrutiny to that, it became very clear that wasn't the case. But if you have the idealistic worldview, you go, ooh, this will work they're telling me it will work and it feels good to be positive and moving forward. It feels so good. And the realists are over here like, yeah, when has a medical intervention ever worked a hundred percent of the time? When has a medical intervention ever worked 95% of the time? And it's like, yeah, there's a few things actually that do, but you see what I'm saying? It's, it's that same kind of mentality. And ironically, it's the idealists in their obsession with progress and their obsession with perfection and, and utopia that ended up buying into something which has now wreaked so much havoc, both on people's bodies, but also on people like yourself who lost a career over it. And, and that's from the idealists who did that to you, not the realists. So anyway, 
Let well, me leave it there. Well, it goes back into that idea of, um, of pathological altruism, um, or I also call it weaponized empathy. Um, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the word catharsis because, you know, it's this Greek term and, you know, the Greeks, they realized that art and specifically theater could be healing, that it could be medicinal. And, um, you know, the, the entertainment industry as a whole and the theater uh, in particular have been outliers in how they've responded and I think over overreacted just a just touch oh um, yeah to no, just, to yeah. to the pandemic and and what's interesting about you and your background and and the way that your mind works and your and your work well, which has been extensive um on on this issue is I think you know you probably more than than most are way more qualified to talk about just how the industry reacted and how it was wrong because for me you know I you know, I was in that camp from from January through March 2020. Those who've been following me for a long time know this. I was totally in the COVIDian cult. I was sending my friends, um, you know, statistics, and I was stocking up on food and masks. I mean, I, I remember, yeah, I remember spending about uh, two to three hours in Lower Manhattan one night, um, walking around to every CVS, every Dwayne Reed, every Walgreens I could find, just trying to find face masks, and I couldn't find any. I needed. I ended up having to pay about seventy five dollars to get them mm. to get a box of fifty from yeah. Amazon. I mean, so they were already hard to find and already sold out. But at that time, you know, I had friends who were like, Ayo, dog, a mask and go and help you, though, man. And people were like, oh, it's just a flu, bro. And I was like, no, everyone's going to die. I can't believe we're still doing Broadway shows, yada, yada, yada. But then over time, you know, I, I just began to question what was going on. And um, nobody else was doing that. And I, I, I escaped to Atlanta to, you know, hoping that things would blow over, but they, they obviously never did. And just to see the industry hurdle, um, hurdle deeper, deeper and deeper into um, this mania um, has been astounding. Well, so here's the thing. So, I mean, there's so many things. We'll try to hit them all. Like, I also was a COVIDian from the beginning. I mean, I have a very strong, like, disgust impulse towards disease I, I really don't I don't handle like the idea of infectious disease well I'm getting better at it I'm getting better at it but I had a very strong sense something is wrong whatever's coming out of China and by the way I'm not sure actually it came out of China but that's a whole other podcast but uh long story short whatever this thing is like it's really scary it's dangerous I don't want it I don't know what the effect's going to be on the human body and and there's a lot of reasons why it turns out that you and I actually were right because I wrote a whole article in Tablet called The Spike, which people are welcome to read, which summarizes a lot of the bad things that COVID, the spike protein of COVID can do to your body, whether you get it from the virus or from the other thing. Uh, and, and, and I think, you know, there's a lot of science to back that up at this point. There's hundreds of studies that show that. So we weren't totally wrong. COVID isn't harmless. It's not just a flu. Uh, at least I'm 99.9% .9 sure that that's the case. Anyone who says that it's harmless uh, I don't think they have a real grasp on the situation. However, it turns out that every intervention people like you and I might have wanted us to do up, up front, the masks, the lockdowns, the, you know, whatever, the, 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 the needle. The, well, that came later, but, you know, and by that time I was on a different page, but, but all the things we tried to do, shutting down schools, shutting down theater, shutting down, you know, in an attempt to protect ourselves, turns out. And, and this was common knowledge going back thousands of years. I don't know if you've talked to like Jay Bhattacharya or anybody from the Great Barrington Declaration, but like they, they knew immediately. Those guys were like students of medical history. They're like, wait a minute, it's a respiratory virus? No, nah, we're fucked. There's nothing you can do. There is no way to prevent it from eventually 
getting to everyone. Everyone's going to get sick. Uh, you know, and unfortunately, let's say that this spike protein piece of this virus, let's say it was artificially manipulated by somebody somewhere. And let's say there's certain, they're called motifs, little sort of pieces of the protein that are particularly dangerous and scary and fucked up. And some might say that those motifs resemble what you might imagine to be a bioweapon of some kind. Okay, and if you get it in your body, bad things long-term could happen to you. Okay, but in spite of all that, the reality is your friends who were like, bro, mask ain't gonna help, they were right. What am I saying? What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say there was no way out. And so our response was actually ultimately more destructive by far than the virus can be. Because as bad as the virus might be, humans have survived many pan pandemics, many plagues, and we will survive more in the future. Um, but shutting down our very way of life and destroying everything that makes it good and beautiful to be a human uh, is crazy. And I'll just add one more thing, which you, I'm sure maybe wanted to talk about anyway. I'm not saying there was nothing we could do because a cadre of very brave doctors worldwide, not just in the US and not just motivated by Trumpism, doctors in India, Honduras, Peru, Mexico, Russia, Israel, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, you name it. They all managed to figure out ways to actually treat the illness. Instead of telling people stay home for seven days until you can't breathe, then come to the hospital and get toxic drugs pumped into your body and a ventilator shoved down your throat. There were doctors all over the world who actually did find ways to treat this illness and there are ways to treat it. And so I don't want people to think that I'm saying that there's nothing we could do. There were things we could do. We just chose, you know, our public health authorities chose to do the useless things. Well, it's really interesting because, you know, part of it goes back into uh, this idealism that you were talking about earlier, this romanticism, um, but also the role of government. I mean, one of my things early on was that, you know, we, as you said, we learn how to treat disease. We learn how to, you know, our, our bodies grow to be able to fight off and ward off disease. But what's, what's more difficult to overcome and get rid of is... Um, empowering the state with broad sweeping powers to do things, um, as you said, to just un just taking unprecedented steps, you know, closing businesses, closing down schools. And that was a big thing for me is like, now you've set the precedent where, you know, you, the government now can declare any kind of emergency in the future. And because you said, okay, not only that did you say, okay, but you said, uh, you know, we can, you can do it for an indefinite period of time. Um, that kind of precedent uh, in my mind was one of the reasons that I began to speak up and become so vocal because, you know, like you said, it's just it's just bizarre to me that people, especially in the theater, especially in the arts, people who should know more than anyone what it is to be alive and who should value and who should understand that life is more than simply staying alive, um, that, you know, there's a, there's a difference between surviving and actually living, um, that they were able to just for an indefinite period of time, just for, you know, cut themselves off from human connection, that they were able, that they said, you know, it, it really spoke to me of a culture that doesn't value itself. And, and I, I mentioned again, the Greeks, you know, and this, this concept of catharsis. And, you know, when I read with the reverence that they write about, uh, like Aristotle writes about the arts and about drama and um, the role of these things in their societies. And I, and I think, back to how theater artists uh, and professionals reacted by, you know, by claiming that they are not essential, 
I mean, are you telling me that Broadway, which brings people from all over the world, not only to see, but to be in shows. I mean, the arts in general are big business in New York City. And even, I mean, I, I had a roommate, which was a, who was, a, she worked at the, at the Frick Museum. And she was a, she was so, she was a shark. You know what I mean? Like even the museum business in New York is cutthroat and it's very highly competitive. And, you know, you see these artists, you know, bitch and complain uh, for government money when, and they talk about how much revenue the arts bring into the city. And you get all these artists from around the world and you're telling me that this sector is not uh, as essential as liquor stores. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I don't buy that. And to see the, the industry as a whole kind of sit back and say that we're not essential, um, you know, because then again, it goes back into, you know, we can bring soul back into this, but you know, if you have a sort of uh, economist's worldview, you understand how everything is interconnected. And if theaters are shut down, then that, that deprives, um, you know, work for ushers, you know, there might be retirees, there might be young people just try, you know, getting their foot in the door. There might be concession stand workers, um, uh, snack vendors, as I was, there are security guards, there's uh, maintenance people who, who maintain the buildings, there's all that foot traffic from the bar bars and restaurants around as well as the souvenir shops you know what i mean there, there's a whole ecosystem that that thrives because the arts are there and the fact that the artists themselves could not see did not have the self-esteem and self-worth to understand their importance to that ecosystem is just stunning to me yeah i mean that's a fair assessment i mean i i guess as someone who in the beginning was basically pro lockdown i mean i was pro whatever was going to stop this scary virus okay like but the, the question is, sorry, sorry. But, the question is, I mean, is, is government, is the government, the state is, you know, can that be used as a tool to stop a virus? And to me, you know, it's a very no, secular no. industry, but it's, but there's people who are trying to play God and control nature through the, through the use of the state, which is like re impossible as you no, were saying. No, in, in, in retrospect, completely impossible, completely impossible. And it's a lesson I've learned. It's a lesson. A lot of people I think have learned. Unfortunately, a lot of people haven't learned. I mean, they're, they're already talking about, you know, lockdowns again for, for the next pandemic or, I mean, climate lockdowns, what does that even mean? I mean, literally, I mean, I know what it means in theory. It's completely ridiculous. Um, and I hope enough of us have learned that we'll never allow it again. I think speaking about the theater, you know, what's a, what's a shame is, okay, I'm 34, you're, I don't know, something, 30 something, uh, 40. Okay. Um, what's a shame is where were the 65 year olds? Where were the 70 year olds? Where were the lions of the theater? The people who are supposed to step in front of the young people and say, hey, we're not going to do this. Hey, you're overreacting. Hey, we got to keep these theaters open. Hey, what we do is valuable. Like, it's really sad to me like that there, there weren't, and you've said this to me privately, we've talked about it. It's like, where were the Joe Paps? Where were the David Merricks? Where were the like ball busting, brave, producers who said you know what guys we're overreacting we owe it to ourselves to try to stay open to try to make this work to you know where were the brave leaders who could get people like you and me pretty quickly on their side if they had just stepped out and been brave and and said some of these things the reality is I don't think there are that many of those people left and this is something else you know we've talked about the theater is a great microcosm of the American left in general because what you realize when you spend time in and around it is that, and part of it's just because it's cost prohibitive to live in New York City, the industry has become really in a lot of ways run by, uh, participated in by people of means, right? 
Like it, 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 there are a lot of people in that world of means, regardless of their background. And that really is the distinction. It's socioeconomic and people of means, generally speaking, and people who want to be around people of means, they don't want to rock the boat because how do you get means? It's not by rocking the boat. I mean, unless you're an Elon Musk or a, you know, of Steve Jobs, and you really try to like upend an industry. But usually, if you're just working your way up the ladder, you don't rock the boat and you teach your children not to rock the boat. I wrote a piece about this in Brownstone called The Obedient Generation, where I was just thinking about all these college kids who are forced to like lose years of their young adult lives that they'll never get back, forced to take a product that they really probably didn't need, and, and that their parents had taught them, you know, the generation that's now what, 50 years old? taught these kids not to stand up for themselves, not to be rebels, all the things that make America great. America is great because it's a rebellious country full of rebellious, crazy people. And instead it's become, especially at the upper echelon of society, a rule following, obedience obsessed. You know what I'm saying? And it's like the theater is totally infected by that completely. Well, well you know, I'm, I'm, and I've been working on this piece and thinking about this a lot. Uh, you know, I, there are some interesting Pew uh, research data that came out a few years ago about uh, the progressive left. And as we both know, the progressives are those who they, they dominate the theater and th their vision dominates the theater. And the progressive left is about, you know, almost 70 percent white, 50 um, percent college educated, you know, with, with degrees or, or more education. And um, I used to call them the blue bourgeoisie. But I had I, I did a podcast recently with a a, a, a colleague that uh, conflated those terms or lied to them. So he just said the bourgeoisie, and that's who oh. these people are. The, yeah. the 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 theater now is a product of the bourgeoisie, and that's what their vision is. That's what their sensibilities are. That's what their worldview is. And it's it's true. This and I remember just being in grad school at NYU. You know, I. I I, the, the people I got along with most in my class, I mean, I was, it was, it was 18 of us, um, three of us were black, um, but the, I got along with probably two or three people the most, and they were all from like poor or, you know, or working backgrounds and everyone else, because I, you know, I think people um, are sort of mistaken about me because of the way that I speak. They think that I came from privilege. I did not. And I think that really affects your your the way that you interact with with people and how you view things because i just said i was thinking to myself i felt like an outlier a lot just because um i was like man these people that you know they they they're so polite they talk around they you know they they talk around everything that they never you know get right to the point you know you, the, the, i'm here in atlanta and you know people they'll tell you how they feel you know new, new yorkers same way you know they, they got jobs to do they got places to be they'll be like hey get you know get the hell out of the way you know, F you, whatever, but it's not this, all this sort of um, delicate language and upward inflections and like, you know, saying uh, uh, 3000 words to say, to say one thing and being kind of passive aggressive and like polite and, you know, and you're rewarded in these, in these circles for, you know, for outsourcing your thinking to higher authorities and for obeying. Oh, love, they and, love experts. They love, experts. they love, they love the experts. But then, you know, especially when we're talking about show business, I mean, it's such uh, an industry uh, or a field where, where, as you say, lack is uh, is commonplace, and so much sacrifice is required that once you break into these higher echelons, you're not going to say anything. You're, of course, you're going to go along with everything. I mean, just the other day they did this um, this tribute. It was a uh, Broadway for Biden, and uh -huh. you know, it's all these uh -huh. big stars of the theater who are raising money for this deeply unpopular president. And I'm thinking to myself, if it were me, I mean, I would just say no anyway. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to be so tightly aligned, uh, you know, 
with any political um, uh, uh, persuasion as a performer. But, you know, it's just this idea that, you know, who, but if you're in their position, you kind of, I mean, why would, why would you say no? Because you have to be a part of the club. You have to kind of go along with it because then, you know, you lose your publicist, you lose your agent, you lose, you lose these nice cushy jobs that are, you know, and, and your face is everywhere. People are telling you you're pretty and you're talented and you're winning these awards. So you're part of this sort of upper echelon and elite and you feel fancy. You get, you go all these perks, you go to fancy restaurants, you get flown around the world. It's just, it's a nice, nice life. And um, you're not going to do anything to, to give that up anytime soon by stepping out of line, ideologically speaking. No, proximity to power is very seductive yeah. and it's seductive for all of us. It's seductive for me. I mean, you know, like, it's not even proximity to power. How about job security? How about just, you know, I need to stay close to people who can provide me job security. I get that. We all get that. But it is the antithesis of art, okay? And I think this is where you and I actually would agree with the wokesters in the theater. I think a lot, of, okay, some of the wokesters in the theater, and everyone hates that word, but I don't care. That's the easiest way to describe them. Uh, the toxic gentle people. Um they are doing what they're doing because actually what they're trying to do is overthrow the power structure at the top of the theater so they can just take those jobs. Some of them are trying to do that. They just want, it's a career move. It's a career move. Oh, all the old white people are racist. They're all horrible. We have to get rid of them. Uh, conveniently, I will then take their job. And then I will make $130,000 a year, $200,000 a year, whatever it is at the very top of these theaters. And, you know, even if it's not that much money, you know, it'll be better than what, you know, so it's a career move for some people. But there's other people who genuinely feel disappointed in what the theater has become. And I think it's partially due to what we're talking about, which is this sort of like proximity to power, safety, job security, the, the professionalization of it all. Now, I'm not saying, because I know you and I have talked about this, I'm not saying people shouldn't try to have a career and make money in the theater and, and do well. But when your attitude becomes all about job security, when your attitude becomes about proximity to power rather than art, rather than leaving it all on the floor. Then you start to get plays and musicals that are boring and then people stop coming. And, I, and so I do agree with anyone that wants to reboot the attitude of the theater towards something that is always art focused, always about telling the best story, always about taking big risks and falling on your faith. I will agree with those people all day long. So it's, it might be a matter of how we do it might be different, but I do think, you know, that we could probably find some agreement on like, things have gotten too comfortable, things have gotten too elite and too elitist. I don't want to see any more plays at Manhattan Theater Club. Yeah, I'm calling you out. I don't want to see any more plays at Manhattan Theater Club about boring old white people either. And But when I say that, what am I talking about? I'm not talking about Arthur Miller plays. I'm not talking about the canon. I'm talking about some playwrights who shall remain nameless who write plays about people on the Upper West Side who sit around the dinner table and talk about Upper West Side bullshit. I don't want to see that either. So I think we agree about that, but we disagree about a lot of other things. Or, or at their country estates. I will say that uh, I think something that's different now, and, and you've touched on this before as well, um, and it made me think more and more about this, but this, what didn't exist um, decades and decades ago is you know, you didn't have all of these BFA and MFA programs around the country who were spitting out every year, you know, tons and tons oh. of actors, you know, yeah. tons and tons of actors, but also writers and directors, lighting designers, stage managers, so on and so forth. So in terms of the careerism, I think maybe there is an expectation there among people that's a little bit unrealistic. It's like, well, I went through this program and I have this BFA and now I'm, I, I should 
should theoretically therefore have the um, the training and the skills to have a career, not to mention the explosion of these theaters, uh, you know, which require a lot of administrators and all these other things. So there's other, there's actual careers like salaried positions at these theaters now available. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've maybe come around to your way of, of thinking in terms of maybe people come into the field with too many expectations as opposed to what it was before, which was like, you're here to do shows and you're here to, you know, and, and it's, you're here because you love it. And there's, it's not an easy life. Um, it's very tough, uh, but you know, you can't do anything else and you know, you can't do anything else. And that is, that's all there is for you. Um, in, in, in the last, the last minutes together, I want to ask you, you know, try to bring it full circle. Um, is, I know, I know how I feel about this, but do you think anything can be done? You know, is it, is, is the theater even worth saving? You know, do American, do you think American can, can Americans can even be made to care at this point in, in, in an era where there's an infinite variety of quote unquote content, a word that, you know, I hate. Yeah. <laughs> something, something new will be born. There's a lot of really talented people who do have work to share. There's a lot of people who are in it for the right reasons. There's a lot of money that still exists for this, although we are about to go through, I think, a horrible depression. Um, so everybody save up, get your cans of beans and water and whatever. But like eventually, sure. I mean, I talked to somebody, you know, who shall remain nameless, who called me, you know, from New York after the article came out and said, you know, hey man, just want you to know there is an there is an underground and there are people who are working outside of these systems and not focusing on the ideology so much and really trying to make art. And there's more and more of them every day, in spite of how difficult it is, in spite of, you know, the predominant prevailing winds. Uh, so I think, yes, it something will emerge. Something will emerge. I'm I'm much more concerned. I mean, okay, I'm concerned about that. I am. Theater will always be my first love. I'm I'm more concerned with actually in order for some in order for an arts industry to blossom, in order for anything to blossom, there has to be some amount of stability and freedom in a country. And I'm more concerned with the fact that I think from for economic reasons and biological reasons, which I think we know what those are, uh there are people at the top of our power structure, unfortunately, the people that many of the Broadway stars seem eager to be close to, who are in the process of destroying our freedom, destroying our uh, the sanctity of our bodies, actually, uh, our ability to seek effective medical care, and a lot of other things that are going to make it very difficult for anyone to do anything in the coming years that is that requires risk, that requires daring, that requires boldness. I think you know, if the people in the theater could, and many of them are very smart, you know, like, it's not like this is an industry of just stupid people, although there are those too. Um, if they could put their talents and, and, and curiosity towards asking some of the questions you and I have started to ask about the weaponized totalitarian biosecurity state that's emerging and create entertainment around it, give me a book of Mormon about what happened the last three years, because that'll speak to people. It'll speak to a lot of people. I mean, maybe you and I should do it, but I'm just saying like, apply your talents to what's going on or there will be no future for any of us to make art in, in my opinion. And, you know, 
I guess it's another podcast. But anyway, that's that's my that's my thought, I guess. Well, you know, it's it's tough for me. You mentioned that there is an underground developing. I do know in other cities, which I shall not name because I don't want um, these uh, these social these social just, cultural. I'm grabbing locusts. my power cable, but I'm listening to you. All right. Well, uh, I'll, I I have no problem speaking. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, I, I don't want these. Um, I'm not going to name the city that I'm thinking of in uh, particularly because I don't want these social cultural locusts, as I, as I call them, to to move or maybe, well, maybe termites is a better term. But it's, it's already too late. But go ahead. Uh, well, see, well, my thing is, you know, you mentioned that there's just there's this underground going on. Okay, well, why is it underground? Why aren't they more public? Why aren't they speaking up and saying, you know, and this this goes back to this this risk averse culture. No one has the balls to say anything. The fact that, you know, I, I and maybe Andrew Lloyd Webber was like the only other person who said, hey, we can't we can't just close down theaters. We have to do shows. Um, Man Morrison, Eric Clapton, but yeah. But but just but in the theater, like no one said anything. No yeah. one. There's a complete dearth. I mean, I had a former friend who the end of our relationship was uh, when they told me, you know, well, I, you know, I agree with you, but I just I don't want to commit uh, professional uh, uh, self-harm. And that to me is the issue is that people don't want to stick their necks out because they they are afraid of the repercussions. And it's like, well. I, I think that there's more of us than there are of these, um, you know, ridiculous activists and extremists, but no one will say anything. Um, and it's just that, that so I, I don't know if the if it can be saved because the ideological rot is so deep. But on top of that, I mean, do Americans even really care? Does the country even care? You're already fighting an uphill battle in, in a country that doesn't really care about the arts in general. Um, and uh, all you've done, especially over the past decade, especially since 2016, is um, alienate everyone. And then on top of that, with your uh, with your coronaphobia, you've you've pissed off and alien, uh, alienated even more people. So how do you win them back after calling them Nazis and granny killers for, you know, for eight years? You know, I, I just don't get it. But then people inside, they see what happens to a Laura Osnes. They see what happens to a Clifton Duncan. And, um, you know, now I, I think now more than ever before, I mean, you know, even the word freedom to these people is a right wing talking point that, you know, the, the fact that you have artists who don't stand up for freedom um, is is shocking to me. So culturally, I don't know if um, if it can be saved, but, you know, but why should we even bother when there seem to be so few people who um, who want to even stand up for the art form in the first place? I mean, that's fair. I mean, I think also that that's very fair. And I think like talking to you and other people who've, so can, can we talk about the mandates for just a second? Sure. Okay. Like, because it was, it was one thing to have lockdown and close the theaters. And as you say, that was, that was the wrong choice. And a lot of mistakes were made. Then the lockdowns went away for the most part, but then what happened in their place was a vaccine mandate where literally Playwrights Horizons, Playwrights Horizons wrote a letter. I mean, I will never forget. The amount of things that have happened over the past three years that I will never forget because of their ludicrousness, because they should have been in a farce, literally in a farce, which I know you did on Broadway. Um, like, Playwrights Horizons wrote a letter, a public letter where they said, okay, basically, I'm summarizing. We have to have vaccine mandates, but we know that that will probably disproportionately affect the black community, but we have to do it anyway. Sorry. So they're basically saying, if you're black, and you didn't get the vaccine, we're sorry that you can't come to our show, but you can't come to our show because we have to have the mandates. And I think the mandates 
after lockdowns were just as alienating and destructive as the lockdowns because the amount of people who secretly, secretly didn't get vaccinated is actually quite substantial. This idea that this idea that everyone got the vaccine and, and it's only Republicans in rural areas that didn't get it, that is not true. So you've alienated a huge part of your audience. You've alienated artists like yourself from being able to participate even after the lockdowns were lifted. And you did it on the basis of bad science, useless science, or let's just say impatient science, because science takes time. But also, I can tell you right now, I wrote this down because it's just so unbelievable. In Okay, so the industry mandate started in July 2021. In April 2021, a paper came out of Harvard, a bunch, not just Harvard, a bunch of the Boston schools. This is the name of the paper. Risk of rapid evolutionary escape from biomedical interventions targeting SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. This is April 2021, right when the vaccines are being rolled out, three months before the industry mandates. And just you know, to summarize what the piece is saying, basically they're saying, and these are very smart people, if you go after a rapidly mutating virus like COVID with an intervention, aka a vaccine or a monoclonal antibody, if anyone even remembers those, that only targets one small part of that virus, you are asking that motherfucker to change and adapt and outsmart you because it is smarter than you and this will never work. Basically, that's what the paper says. This will never work. It's, uh, by the way, if anyone wants to look it up, it's uh, Van Aragon et al., Harvard scientists. Anyway, so we knew in April, or at least we had a pretty good theory in April as people were getting the shots, that the shots were gonna fail, that the virus would mutate and that this would all be a farce. And then they pass a mandate, and then guess what? The virus mutated, and it was all a farce. And they held on to the mandates for two years. I have to say that that Playwrights Horizons letter is uh, is deeply shameful. And also, you have to consider that this is an industry, which you know we we covered earlier. The We See You White American Theater uh, uh, manifesto. And right after that, uh, you know, the, the industry got taken over by this huge wave of anti-racist fervor. And so that, you know, these ideas from Robin DiAngelo and Ibram X. Kendi, or AKA Henry Rogers, Henry Fivehead Rogers is freaking moron. Um, I didn't even know that was his real name. That his real name, his real name is Henry Rogers. You ain't Cassius Clay, nigga, your name is Henry Rogers. So anyway, you know, he, they, they went full on into like, you know, we're an anti-racist industry. And yet I think it's in chapter two, chapter two of, of Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. He defines a racist policy as a policy which which uh, exerts a disproportionate impact uh, on a racial group, you know, or between racial groups. And the vaccine mandates undeniably had this disproportionate impact. So it's, it's and again, this goes back into this white, mostly white affluent bourgeoisie who says, you know what, we're actually, we know that this is actually a violation of our anti-racist religion, but we don't care because we're protecting ourselves. We don't care about, you know, and this is, this is why I, I say it's the niggerization of the unvaccinated. This is exactly what they did. They don't like it, but I'm going to keep on saying it because that is what they did. Yeah. I mean, and, <laughs> and, and like I said, it was, it was, it was pretty clear to people, you know, to a certain group of, of pretty smart people that this intervention, which ended up alienating so many people and ruining lives and, and taking audience members out of the theater and frankly making the whole experience unpleasant to begin with, because think about it, you go to the theater, do you really wanna show your passport? I mean, let's not even get into the like, let's not even get into the optics of show your papers, please. I mean, like 
literally, are you kidding me that that's what was going on in the theater? And then you're going to sit there and try to enjoy a show and also have Patti LuPone scream at you if you take your mask off. By the way, and I love, I've always loved her. I think she's a genius, but Patty, get over it, man. Are you joking? You're going to scream at people about the fucking masks? By the way, you know, the whole masking thing, again, it's a respiratory pathogen that is smaller than you can even imagine. Even if you wear an N95 correctly, if you don't use a new one every day, they start to become useless. Not to mention that they themselves are very toxic and bad for you. So you know, where do these people get off? And they claim to love the experts. This is the thing that kills me. They claim to love the experts. They love Joe Biden and they love his experts because they're all smart New Yorkers. We're smart New Yorkers. We follow the science. And it's like, which experts? And why are they telling you what they're telling you? And what? And why aren't these people from Harvard experts at what they do in modeling you know, molecular virology and telling you ahead of time, this intervention will fail. We need to do a multi a multiplicity of things, which we didn't end up doing. It's like, what? So we can't listen to them. We can't have a conversation about this. You're just going to scream at us in the audience for trying to take a breath. I mean, it has to stop. I mean, all of it has to stop. Um, and unfortunately, you know, a lot of things have also come out in the last two years, which just show not only how ineffective this intervention was, but you know, potentially having a lot of, that it has a lot of downsides as well. And I'm not, I'm certainly not gloating about it. It's terrifying. But what's really terrifying is that somebody like yourself, in order to save your career, would have had to take a product, which subsequently has been found to have some real issues. And then where would you be? You'd have your career, so to speak. But you'd also, the very people who give you your lifeblood, your career, your joy, would have also betrayed your body. So then what does that mean? Because if they betrayed your body, how can you perform in their spaces, doing their words for their audiences with a, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, it's fundamental. This is deep stuff. And, and actually actors are right in the middle of it because what is an actor except like an amazing vessel and an expression of, of body and soul. So it, it's really all, I mean, it's all like really connected and it's, 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 it's dark. A lot of it's really dark stuff. It's a deep, uh, deep, deep betrayal of the art form and of the people who practice it um, and of the public uh, at large. But all these questions that you're asking uh, are clearly beyond the capacity uh, and the courage of anyone in the industry to uh, to question, which is unfortunate. Uh, Clayton, uh, we can go on and on, as you and I both know, but um, I'm going to stop it here. How can people reach and support you and where can they find uh, you and your work? Um, well, thank you. It's been a blast, as always. And, uh, you know, thanks for having me on. Um, people can find me on Twitter at Clay Fox Writer. That's probably the easiest way to find me. Um, and then, you know, I work at Tablet mostly. So tabletmag.com. You can see some of my work there and some of my colleagues work, um, you know, and for now, that's it. Maybe someday I'll I'll do the Substack thing. I have one, but I don't I don't use it. Um, and uh, yeah, I look forward to continuing the conversation uh, as, as this all continues. 